good morning ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. As ever, I am your host, Catherine, and it is very, very nearly Christmas at the point I am recording this. So, Merry Christmas to you all. My Twitter peeps have requested that I do a Christmas special on Unseen Poetry. So, assuming over the Christmas season, once I'm back from holiday, that will be happening. SDR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com and Patreon slash Straight Talking English. If you like what I do, if you'd like to support the show, then please, please, please donate something on Patreon. My top tier subscribers will be able to commission me to do an episode on anything they want within reason. <laughs> I ain't writing no stuff on Twilight or um, is it Katie Price's autobiography, which by the way is completely unintentionally hilarious. Um, she goes through a bunch of romance novels, which are just so bad. But my top tier subscribers will be able to commission me to write anything they like and you can donate for as little as a pound a month and it would honestly really make a big difference to me. So thank you in advance. Speaking of things you can do, as well, I have got this all in the wrong order because my recording schedule was out of whack this week because I've had to do like work, you know, like my day job. So the book that accompanies this mini series is actually already out on Amazon. The full context of Mice and Men, if you're enjoying this bit, this little mini series breaksicle, then the book is available. It's a tenner. It's actually A5 size, so it makes a really nice little stocking filler. And it's pretty pretty well researched, if you don't mind me saying so myself. Uh, I'm pretty happy with this one, actually. So, today is a difficult episode, because we're going to talk about Crooks and Curly's wife. So we're going to talk about matters which will involve racial slurs, racial violence, and also at least one part that will involve intimate partner violence so just letting you know now that's coming up if that's likely to cause you distress then your too long don't read summary is Steinbeck is awful everything is awful for everyone goodbye thank you thank you straight talking english sdra talkenglish.com no, 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 I will go into detail, but I thought it was fair to give you guys context warning. The other reason I waited on this one is I am recording this the Monday after the general election 2019 in which the Conservatives have swept to a majority. Now, when I was writing my book, um, my editor was saying, you're being too delicate, you're being too cautious with your words when you're talking about stuff which is horrific like you need to get a little bit angrier you need to be more forceful and after that election <laughs> and obviously I'm not telling you who to vote for like if you are like someone who is a died in the wall conservative cool I'm pleased you're happy however as someone who works in alternative provision with uh, vulnerable young people whose boyfriend is Italian and who uh, has prescriptions that may be in shortage, I am not especially pleased. So recording this today, <laughs> I should have some rage, rage in me. I might have to move away from my mic 
before I start talk, before I start yelling in case it messes up my level. So thank you for bearing with me. I just have some uh, rage deep inside. Right, let's talk about crooks first. Crooks is defined by the colour of his skin. Full stop. He is first introduced to us by Candy using the N-word about 25 times in a paragraph. And then he is referred to by Curly's wife using the N-word. <laughs> he is defined by the colour of his skin. And that really, really sucks. As I mentioned in American Dreams, Crook's dream is getting what's owed to him. So after Civil War in America, you have a lot of emancipated black people. And the white population seem sort of to be at a loss as to what to do with that. The president is promising equal rights and equal opportunities, but it ain't happening. This is the era of the Jim Crow laws, of segregation, of kind of just sort of go over there, we don't want to get involved. I mentioned last time as well the KKK. So, Ku Klux Klan, 1920s, massively huge, just huge. It's blending xenophobia, religious prejudice and white supremacy along with moralism. So I mentioned last time about how actually it's kind of useful to see what a lot of the morals were like. Like the idea that, you know, bootlegging is bad. But it can't really be separated from the horrific bigotry and the idea that America is one thing, white European heritage, Protestant, and by the way, a specific kind of European, like Italians, no go. After a very famous political case involving two guys called, uh, Fra was it Franco and Zafetti? I'm probably getting that wrong, these two famous um, anarchists. Italians are seen as sketch as well. Anyone who might be potentially a communist, no. You are either part of this community or you are not. If you are Catholic, if you are Jewish, if you are Mexican, no. And this is this prevailing prejudice which is coming forward. It's, uh, it's very tricky. Steinbeck decided to include a black character. This is a conscious decision on his part. He didn't just randomly like, oh yeah, how about we have some black people? No, he decided to do this. This is written in 1937, of course, and the decision to include a black character in the form of Crooks, who is arguably smarter and more intelligent and just generally kind of nicer than the rest of them, is conscious. He links to Steinbeck's views on race. I'm going to point out he uses the word Negro a lot and compared to the language of his time, that's being polite. <laughs> so I'm just pointing that out now. Steinbeck said in later non-fiction works, I am constantly amazed by the qualities we expect in Negroes. No race has ever offered another such high regard. We expect Negroes to be wiser than we are, more tolerant than we are, braver, more dignified than we, more self-controlled and self-disciplined. We even demand more talent from them than ourselves. 
a Negro must be 10 times as gifted as a white to receive equal recognition. We expect Negroes to have more endurance than we in athletics, more courage in defeat, more rhythm and versatility in music and dancing, more controlled emotion in theatre. We expect them to obey rules of conduct that we flout, to be more courteous, more gallant, more proud, more steadfast. In a word, while maintaining that Negroes are inferior to us, by our unquestioning faith in them, we prove our conviction that they are superior in many fields, even in fields where we are presumed to be trained in, and they are not. And okay, okay, I do actually have a little bit of empathy for that viewpoint because whoever is in power be it based on skin colour like money, background, whatever you expect the people um, who are not in power to behave as you do in order to make them acceptable and that's a bit like um, well no actually there's a million ways of behaving I was reading about this um, in an article quite recently and there's an issue with school uniform in some parts of America. So where schools have brought in school uniform, um, there are young ladies who are wearing head wraps which are traditional in some African cultures and there are young ladies having hair ornaments or hooped earrings which are relevant to their culture. And that's coming up as a school uniform issue of being like, well, why should you wear a colourful head wrap? That's not school uniform. And actually, it's a cultural thing. So why should you be expecting a young lady to be conforming to a different culture's standards? Why? It's also um, a behaviour issue as well. So when uh, a lot of schools are like, oh, this girl was being loud to me they're always going to be picking on the person who isn't necessarily behaving quote-unquote in a white way. You can tell I'm raging still, so I'm going to get off my high horse for a second. But Crooks is better than the other characters. He reads a dictionary. The rest of the ranch hands read cowboy magazines. Crooks is polite to Curly's wife, even when he's angry. And George is the one who's like, jailbait. <sighs> we can actually see a good real life example of this. This guy called Aaron Barkham was a young boy when the depression hit. He and his father got jobs as miners, M-I-N-E-R-S, and they all moved to a mining camp. Like, they were, they were mixed. It was so segregation wasn't um, enforced at this mining camp. So you had families from all kinds of backgrounds living next to each other. And when he was older, he gave an interview and said half the coal camp was coloured. It wasn't anti-coloured. The black people had the same responsibilities as the white. Their lawn was just as green as the white man's. Sure, the company tried to play one side against the other, but it didn't work. The coloured and the whites lived side by side. It was something like a checkerboard. There'd be a white family and a coloured family. No, sir, there was no racial problem. Yeah, they had a certain feeling about the coloured. They had a certain feeling about the whites, too. Anyone who come into the community had unsatisfactory dealings. If it was coloured or white, he didn't say. Okay, he makes it sound pretty idyllic, pretty utopian. And again, this interview was conducted in the 50s, so using the word coloured is acceptable. And again, he's trying to be polite. But... <laughs> 
On one hand, we're like crooks. Yeah, this is kind of realistic. A lot of the segregation rules aren't necessarily enforced. There is positive representations of black people. But then this is coming after, oh my, it, honestly, I watched a half hour video on this and it made me sad. It comes about 10 years after what's called the Tulsa Race Massacre. It's, it's horrible, it's horrible. So Tulsa in Oklahoma, right, had 10,000 black people and they all lived in this one neighborhood called Greenwood and it had a really thriving business district because all the money that people in this community spent stayed within the community because of segregation. So people who've got money are gonna spend it at the restaurant they're allowed to go to, the clothes store they're allowed to go to. And it's this prospering place, it's called Black Wall Street. Between 1921, a teenager called Dick Rowland entered an elevator on um, South Main Street. He, there was an elevator operator who was white, and she screamed and said, he tried to touch me. He fled the scene. I mean, he's gonna flee the scene because he's no way he's gonna get a fair trial. But he got arrested. The elevator had um, like jolted because it's the 30s and he grabbed onto the first thing that he could to not fall over and it was this girl's arm. The newspapers reported he had sexually assaulted her. 25 armed black men arrived to help guard him after a white mob arrived. Some of these black guys were World War I veterans. Eventually 75 armed black men were there and there were 1,500 white people. Groups of these white Tulsans shot someone in a movie theatre, burnt down 35 city blocks around 1,300 houses, including two newspaper offices, a school, a library, a hospital, churches, hotels, stores and other black-owned business. They literally had aeroplanes dropping bombs and wiped out half the town. 6,000 people were eventually arrested but no charges or repercussions occurred. And that's just like, oh, an amusing footnote that people would tell each other at this point. And oh my god, like, it's just horrific. Like, when I was told my partner that I was writing this book and he's like, you've got to see this video on YouTube. And normally the guy, um, he recreates famous cities, but he decided to do one on um, the Tulsa Race Massacre, like research it. It's hideous and that is 10 years before Crooks is introduced. People reading it then, and Crooks himself, assuming he's real, are gonna know this. And this is not an isolated story. Let's talk about, and this is the hideous bit, lynching. In 1920, three black men uh, who were circus workers, uh, Elias Clayton, Elmer Jackson, Isaac McGee, were lynched in Duluth, Minnesota, accused of raping a white girl. The victim was later examined by a doctor who found no evidence for assault. Two months later, a mob of a thousand people stormed a Texas jail and lynched um, L-I-G-E, so I'm going to go with Liege Daniels, who was accused of murdering a white woman. 
Photographs of his dangling body were turned into souvenir postcards as ever there were smirking white crowds below, including children. Later that year, there was a triple lynching in Santa Rosa, California in front of spectators, one of whom offered vivid eyewitness accounts of the sickening event to the press. It was observed at the time the excuses offered for lynching had grown even thinner if mobs could no longer be bothered to rationalise torture and murder. Once the only adequate provocation acknowledged by public opinion was quote-unquote the ravishment of a white woman by a negro, which is what the Dallas Express said, now public opinion is just like, yeah, you're doing something we don't like. Some of the things that can cause lynching are wild talk, gambling dispute, wage dispute, debt dispute, and quote-unquote circulating literature. It's this knife edge that people are on and as the great depression is going on as things are getting better in the cities and things are staying pretty rubbish in the countryside it is just like if you are not white and you do anything that people don't like in depending on the community you can just be summarily murdered and turned into a photograph uh and it's it's just unbelievably awful again it's kind of weird for us to imagine because in the uk we don't have this tradition among white people like it's not something that we have to confront and reading about this was absolutely sickening so crooks is threatened with lynching uh curly's wife says listen n-word she said you know what i can do to you if you open your trap and Crook stared hopelessly at her, then he sat down on his bank bunk and drew into himself. You know what I could do? Crook seemed to grow smaller and pressed himself against the wall. Yes, ma'am. Will you keep your place then, N-word? I could get you strung up on a tree so easy it ain't even funny. And, yeah, even though obviously murder is illegal, murder will always be illegal, you can kind of sort of not have any repercussions if she did want to do that, and it's this moment of power that Curly's wife holds. And I'm sure I've mentioned this before, lynching as a discreet crime only became illegal in 2018, um, which is awful. Various points, it was, people did try and ban it, but it sort of didn't really work because everything is awful in the 1920s. It's estimated, according to the NAACP, that 4,743 lynchings occurred between 1882 and 1968. The majority of the people killed in these lynchings were black. This is the point I'm going to make. Um, it's in California, in rural California. Crooks is not the only target, and in fact he may not necessarily be the primary target. If there's a community, a white community that is very, very, very riled up and you've got this tense situation, they are more likely to turn on the Mexican community, specifically in California, because it's this more economically motivated hatred on the whole. Fantastic um, article which I read called When Americans Lynched Mexicans from the New York Times. The, uh, there's these threats of Mexican revolutionary violence. You have Mexican people coming across the border 
to work in these fantastic California valleys, you have some outlaw kind of gangs who as late as 1918 attacked ranches and there is something called Horror de Sangre, The Hour of Blood or the Poor Veneer Massacre in which 15 Mexican men are killed um, as allegedly being spies and informants for um, Mexican outlaws. There are lynchings, pressure is from the Mexican government to not do that, but uh, still going on. Basically there is so much violence in this book, there is so much violence and Crooks' role as being separated, not just because of his intellect and his behaviour, but also legally separated. The fact that Curly's wife can so easily bring in these threats of violence is kind of just like an extra twist on like a book that's already filled with like puppies being thrown at walls and like crushing mice in your hand and like this pitchfork hanging over your head which is like oh my days everything is so horrifically violent and i'm really really hoping that if i ever go to a farm it's not actually gonna be like this um i'm laughing as a way to relieve the tension because i have spent so long writing about this and i am so sick of writing about horrible violence this is my ranty episode let's talk about curly's wife lynn let's move on um Steinbeck and women is a whole mess of trouble. He is awful. He is just awful when it comes to women. And it's not like, so I'm researching Lord Byron at the moment, and it's not like Lord Byron, which kind of reads as this like Benny Hill sketch of a life. Steinbeck is just someone I want to grab by the shoulders and shake. Right. His sister said, John had complicated relations with mother and they never really got along. He never felt satisfied. He felt he could never live up to his mum's standards. She wanted him to be the best. She was concerned for his education and moral development and she loved him very much and that's how she expressed it. But John was like, no, I'm never good enough for her. Remember, as I summarised before, John Steinbeck is a massive edgelord. He is the one who's like, I'm so hideous. No one understands me, man. Why don't you understand my book? So she's just doing this weird acting out thing. Steinbeck at least once um, has been proved to be domestically violent. There have been many accusations that he was an abuser. One is proved. This is the gross bit. He was dating a woman called Polly. And she had no interest in keeping up with him drinking. He was soon terribly drunk. Several hours later, after making a pass which Polly rebuffed, he seems to have gone crazy. He began screaming at her, then dragged her to the top floor of a house and dangled her by the ankles from the second story window. Polly shrieked for help, begging him to bring her back in the room, and were it not for the intervention of his neighbour, Polly might have been killed. She was not hurt. He was not charged. We're all good. But this is 
this bit where we see Steinbeck's misogyny showing. The women in Steinbeck's books tend to fall very much into the good and the bad, like the angel and the devil. And honestly, the amount of times in class I've had to shush a child who's been like, oh, Curly's wife's a slut, and been like, no, 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 she's just a needy person. After researching Steinbeck, yeah, he probably did just, he probably just didn't like her very much. <laughs> he's, he's awful. He got married to Carol, who was his first wife. They got divorced. He basically lived off her. She was working and funding his stuff. He has not appreciated the massive efforts she made on his behalf, the sacrifices, the adjustments to meet his, to meet his schedule, the willingness to type manuscripts, self-repression. One one critic says that it borders on gross inhumanity the way he treated her. He ditches Carol for Gwyn, who is a nightclub singer, when he was separated. They had two sons together. Gwyn later, when she'd remarried, said from the time John awoke to the time he went to bed, I had to be his slave. She maintains that he was cheating on her from day one and was awful. The reason I'm saying maintaining is because there was a lot of stuff said on both sides. The biographers have been like, well, this bit isn't true, this bit isn't true. But this is a story that she told to an interviewer. He met his third wife, Elaine, after separating from Gwyn. They went to a party and were introduced by the famous actress Ava Gardner. They were together for 20 years and were believed to actually be the romantic couple. Curly's wife though is based on, allegedly, allegedly according to Jay Perini, his biographer, is based on um, a woman he tried to date when he was living in New York. So, he met this girl and he's like she's so beautiful she's so beautiful she's gonna be my perfect dream girl and then he got to know her and he's like you're coming to the opera with me you're going to appreciate the great things i love and she's like nah i like musical theater he's like no you're going to be my perfect woman and she's like nah you're a bit weird have you considered getting a job <laughs> And then he's written her into a bunch of his stories as being like this evil woman who cannot ever support the men. And yeah, it's actually based on this waitress he met. She comes up in one of his short stories as well. Now, what's awesome about doing a book in the 21st century, which I'm, 20th century, which I'm really, really going to miss when I do the next project on poetry, is... We honestly have what he thought of Curly's wife when he wrote her in print, because he's put it down. So as I said, If Mice and Men was designed to be turned into a play with very little effort, it's supposed to be uh, translatable. So, the actress who was playing Curly's wife in um, one of the very first productions was apparently not doing a very good job. 
and Steinbeck wrote her a letter to explain a bit more about the character. It's called the Miss Loose Letter. There you go. About the girl, I don't know of course what you think about her. Perhaps if I should tell you a little about her as I know her, it might clear your feeling about her. She grew up in an atmosphere of fighting and suspicion. Quite early she learned she must never trust anyone, but she was never able to carry out what she learned. A natural trustfulness broke through constantly and every time it did she got hurt. Got hurt, I think. Her moral training was most rigid. She was told over and over that she must remain a virgin because it was the only way she could get a husband. This was harped on so often it became a fixation. It would have been impossible to seduce her. She had only that one thing to sell and she knew it. Now, she was trained by threat not only at home but by other kids. And any show of fear or weakness brought an instant persecution. She learnt to be hard to cover her fright, and automatically she became hardest when she was most frightened. She is a nice, kind girl, not a floozy. No man has ever considered her as anything except a girl to try and, to try to make. I, I think, like, make love to. Um, sometimes the language is a bit lost in translation. She has never talked to a man except in the sexual fencing conversation. She is not highly sexed, particularly, but knows instinctively that if she is to be noticed at all, it will be because someone finds her sexually desirable. As to her actual sexual life, cheers Steinbeck for sharing this, thanks mate. She has had none except with Curly and there's probably been no consummation there, since Curly would not consider her gratification and would probably be suspicious if she had any. Consequently, she is a little starved. She knows utterly nothing about sex except the mass misinformation girls tell one another. If anyone, a man or woman, ever gave her a break, treated her like a person, she'd be a slave to that person. Her craving for contact is immense, but she, with her background, is incapable of conceiving any contact without some sexual context. With all this, if you knew her, if you could ever break down a thousand little defences she's built up, you would find a nice person, an honest person, and you would end up by loving her. But such a thing could never happen. You've known girls like that, haven't you? You see them in Central Park on a hot night. They travel in groups for protection. They pretend to be wise and hard and voluptuous. Right. Okay, 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 okay. So this is what Steinbeck is advising an actress. How to play Curly's wife. And it gives her an insight into potential sympathetic sides to show uh, potential reasoning behind the fact this character is written to shout the n-word every five minutes we are talking about a fairly sexually open time in the 1920s yeah i know it's written in 37 but all the characters would have grown up in the 20s Apparently, 39% of women lost their virginity before marriage at this point. And between 29 and 33, the marriage rate in the US fell a staggering 22% between the years 29 to 33. Now, this is quite funny. Uh, you can Google this. Uh, 1939 scientific marriage test. And I do want to point out that both me and my boyfriend, I made him take this test and we both came out as being like negative points because we're so awful. <laughs> so aside from being like the obvious ones, um, like cheating on someone, apparently wearing nail polish and going to bed while wearing curlers are considered marital vices. 
So the fact that she's portrayed as having these little sausage curls and the red nail varnish automatically codes her as being a badon. Question is, why is she hanging around the farm so much? We've got, like, women have got the vote at this point. We've got more women than ever going to college. Why is she hanging around like a loose end? Well, 1930s, we've got a spike in policies and laws that discriminated against or even forbade women to go to work when they were married. During the Great Depression, discrimination against their employment had become law. The historian um, Megan MacDonald Way says that nine states had marriage work bans prior to the Depression, and by 1940, 26 states restricted married women's employment and state government jobs. That became kind of a scapegoat for the economic crisis. Oh no, there are too many girls who've got jobs. And it's kind of seen, there's this concept of pin money, where if you're a married woman who has a job, you're just like getting extra money for little treats. Like, oh, but your husband pays for anything, and I guess you've got a job just to get, you know, a new little hat or something, which is so insulting. This pretty much only applied to white women, by the way. Black women didn't have marriage bars, but also didn't really have access to the jobs that were discussed. There was this kind of conception as well that you'd work outside the home before you were married and return to the home after you were married you it's also linked to this like weird kkk 20s thing of like social disintegration social degeneracy it creates the disintegration of family life the committee 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 in Wisconsin said the large number of husbands and wives working for the state raises a serious moral question. As this committee feels, the practice of birth control is encouraged and the selfishness that arises from the income of employment of husband and wife bids fair to break down civilization and a healthy atmosphere. So she basically can't really do anything. This journalist, Norman Cousins, in 1939, said the solution to the Great Depression was simply fire the women who shouldn't be working anyway and hire the men. Presto, no unemployment, no relief rolls, no depression. Oh, God, I kind of hate him already. I also kind of hate him because he's called Norman, and that's just... That's just prejudice on my part, since I'm talking about prejudice today. Um, as with most stuff, even though Steinbeck is not really a religious person but as i said before california is the garden of eden believe it or not you won't find it too hard if you ain't got that do re me back to woody guthrie who i absolutely love california is the garden of eden so you have to have the in and the out you have to have the fall of man steinbeck's books include almost to the point of misogyny the fallen woman it follows that the women will often get the blame for Eden's problems. This is something that feminist critics have noticed. And just like in the story of Adam and Eve, of mice and men, 
it's the woman's fault. The men will never get back into Eden and get their dream. That's the trope of the woman and that's what Curly's wife is coming into. I feel like since he wrote this as, like, you know, I said the novelette, the, the thing that could be turned into a play, I do feel like that was kind of why he tried to make this character so direct to play. But he flip-flops between fallen woman, terrible woman, and, oh, but she's just been hurt a lot. And his own relationships with women are so hideous. <laughs> They're just awful. Again, I'm laughing to relieve tension. But I'm just assuming it comes across as an awful Steinbeck business. Right, that's it. That is it for Of Mice and Men. Yes, finally! Long episode this time because I had some uh, loose ends to tie up. So, I am done with Of Mice and Men. The next writing project, a next series proper, is gonna be AQA The Set Poems. I'm gonna be flip-flopping between the two halves, so... Cos Shelley comes up in both halves. Shelley comes up in power and conflict and love and relationships. So some poets will come up for both. Whatever, it'll make sense when I do it. And that's gonna be in the new year, start of 2020. Um, I might need a week or two to get ahead of my research because this is going to be a horrible beast of a project. I Coming up is going to be the Christmas special where I try and tackle an unseen poem. And I'm considering trying to do it live and I might go back on this because I just tend to cuss a lot when I'm trying to do an unseen poem. I'm full of the euphoria of finishing of mice and men. The book relating to the poetry will be out probably before Easter, but as I've mentioned, I actually have to write the thing. And I've really intimidated myself. Hopefully this will work out. Thank you so much for bearing with me. Thank you so much for making 2019 the year of my podcast. Love you guys. I've been keeping this going for 10 months now means so much to me that you are listening str talk english on twitter straighttalkenglish.com buy my books buy my books buy my books the full context on amazon patreon slash straight talking english if you like what i do and i will speak to you in 2020 Woo!